I'd like for you to turn to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, You do not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In 1975, a man by the name of Raymond Moody, a medical doctor, an M.D., wrote a book in which he reported or recorded 150 cases of people who had experienced clinical death and these people had been revived, resuscitated, and brought back to tell about their experience. This man wasn't a kook, and this book wasn't some tabloid that you'd pick up at a counter at a supermarket. It's a very scholarly work. It took him 12 years to write it. He started writing when he was a student at the University of Virginia. He became a teacher at the University of North Carolina. And he completed his book when he went back to the University of Virginia to study for the M.D. degree. He was looking for some common element or some common denominator that would give credence to these stories and others that were flying around in the late 60s and early 70s. And he found to his amazement that there was not just one common denominator, but there were many. These people who had experienced this death or near-death experience said that at death's door or beyond death they experienced strange sensations. Some of them were auditory and some were not. Some were pleasant and some were unpleasant. They said they felt like they were being pulled through some kind of tunnel-like structure, really some, like some dark canyon or valley and there was momentary darkness, and then they were thrust into this light and these beautiful scenes, pastoral scenes, of meadows and ponds with swans swimming on them. And each of them said that they experienced the most calm and tranquil feeling they had ever known in their life. They said that when this death experience occurred, that they exited their physical bodies and they entered what they called their spiritual bodies. Now these bodies were not formless, but they lacked solidarity. They were not ghost-like. They were not some big glob. They had form. And they could move about effortlessly in these spiritual bodies. And they told that they were able to look down upon or back upon their physical bodies and they could pick up thoughts of those who were left behind. The most common element was that they, in this near death or death phenomena, that they encountered a kind of an earthly light, a light being 
And this light being generated warmth, had a personality, and would speak to them, asking them questions like, Are you ready to die? Or how, has, how is your life? I might say parenthetically that a friend of mine was attending the Columbus, Columbus Avenue Baptist Church in, in Waco a few years back. It was the first Sunday after the college students had come to the campus of Baylor University. And so they were kind of having a back-to-school special emphasis. And a man got up to give his testimony, and he had a seven-year-old son who during that summer had had one of these experiences. And he told his father in the language of a small child that he remembered after death being in a swing and a bright light as brilliant as the sun. He could hardly look upon it came to that swing and began to talk to him. He said he had a wonderful place of pleasure and happiness, and he wanted this little boy to go with him to that place where children were playing. And then he said, the light being said, but I know your parents would grieve, and they need you now, so I'll let you go back to them, and I'll call you back at another time. They said they encountered these this light being that had personality, that spoke to them expressing love, asking questions. Each of them said that these experiences were learning experiences. And each one said that they felt like after they crossed death's door, that they had not been as loving as they should have been. And when they came back, they all became a more loving person a better spouse, a better parent. And each one of them said that after having this experience, they had no fear of death any longer or no dread of it. Now there are many explanations or uh, reasons for these, this phenomena and have been given. Some have said that these were really just dreams, that dreams actually are movies of the subconscious, and we have all of these thoughts that we've picked up from our parents or some preacher who's talking about heaven embedded in the subconscious. And in the trauma of death, these movies kicked in and they were really kind of wish dreams. Some have called them visions or hallucinations. And some have said these are just physiological or neurological phenomenon that need to be set aside and having no consequence whatsoever. However, Moody makes an interesting and important point when he says that we might learn more about how to live from these experiences of death. For he said that the best way to understand life is to view life in perspective of a knowledge of death. This may be what Jesus is about in the last days of his ministry. It seemed like that as Jesus came to the end of his earthly ministry, he began to prepare his disciples for death, his death. And he was preparing them for his death in order that they might, he might be assured that they would live correctly after he was gone. So if you read chronologically the last chapters of John beginning at chapter 11, it just becomes apparent that Jesus begins to teach them about death so he can teach them about life. And he comes to the 11th chapter of John 
in the encounter with death, in the, in the death of Lazarus, I'm impressed by the fact that Jesus told his disciples, I'm glad for your sakes that Lazarus died. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not here when Lazarus was ill because I want you to learn to live from Lazarus' death experience. And then he comes to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel and he begins to crack the door a little bit and allow these disciples to see beyond death, much like what we have just talked about here, so we can actually learn from these experiences. Now, I know that it is a dangerous thing to worship experience. We're studying on Wednesday night, experiencing God, and, how, and even though we're talking about the fact that we learn from God by experiencing Him, I must tell you that it is dangerous to worship an experience that's not validated by Scripture. Some of you worship your experiences, and that's all you talk about is some experience you have. You cannot, you cannot judge the Bible by your experience. You must judge your experience by the Bible. However, there are certain things about these common elements that parallel what I understand about the biblical revelation. For example, when they said that they were pulled through this tunnel-like structure of darkness out into this beautiful light, light and pictures and, and, and scenes. What do you think about immediately? You think about the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And in that Psalm and others, there are examples of beautiful pastoral scenes and tranquil waters. When they said that they were able to exit their physical bodies and enter a spiritual body. You automatically think of the experience of Jesus after His resurrection. For after His resurrection, He had a spiritual body. It was not limited by time or space. He could just think where He wanted to be and be there. And even though His disciples were in a room locked, He just appeared in their midst. And yet this body, spiritual body, post-resurrection spiritual body of Jesus had physical identification. He said, look at these nail prints and put your hand there and feel this wound the spear made. And they didn't have to because they'd already identified him as being Jesus. And I think of that marvelous theological discourse that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul talks about this resurrected body that we'll all have. And he finishes that great theological discourse like this. So is also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. When one hears of these experiences, that in these experiences they encountered a heavenly light, you think immediately of Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world. And who can forget the transfiguration account when these disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration 
visited with Jesus, with Moses and Elijah, and Jesus was transfigured in their midst. And behind this veil, thin veil of flesh, was this divine effulgence that burst into light, and so brilliant was he that they could not look upon him. When they talk about, when they talked about the fact that they felt immediately beyond this door called death, that they were not loving enough, one remembers what Jesus told his disciples at the end. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And when they each said that they no longer had any dread of death or fear of it, one remembers what Paul was saying when he said, I'm in this strait between two. I'm pressed between two great decisions. I have a desire to be with the Lord, which is far better. But I must remain here with you, I guess, for it's better for you that I stay. But what he was saying was, because of what I know about death, I have no fear or dread of it at all. As a matter of fact, one of these people that uh, Moody studied said that after his experience beyond death's door, he said, I no longer dread death nor fear it. I don't, know, I don't wonder where I'm going when I die. I've already been there. Now I don't have a death wish, but I think that I am looking anxiously for it. C.S. Lewis in 1963 had one of these experiences. This profound scholar who has written such things to confound the greatest intellects said when he had this death experience he wrote in his diary he said death is a is a is an easy passage i almost resent that i was called back and he wrote his sister saying death is a luxuriously easy passage I resent that death's door was slammed in my face. Now what I want to do with this this morning in the remaining time is try to give a biblical perspective on life and death. For I believe that we understand how to live when we understand what dying is about and we understand dying when we know more about what living is about. So I want to make... The best I can, I want to put this in a biblical perspective. I want to talk about life and death in a biblical perspective. What about this life? Where did it come from? I mean, this universe. Who created? Is there really a creator? Did God really make us? As the psalmist said, He wove us in our mother's womb like a fabric and farmed us there. Did He really do that? Is this universe we call, this, this thing we call the universe, this planet we call earth, is it really the result of the creating, the creating hand of God? Or is it just an the result of an explosion and a primal mass, if some suggest. And after this gigantic explosion, the, 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 the planets and the stars became the fallout. I mean, is that really true? And is there a God? And where did this primal mass come from if we're the result of that? Edwin Conklin used to contrast the possibility of the earth being the result of a big bang, a collision, an explosion in the universe, 
with the probability of a dictionary being formed by an explosion in a publishing house. And one man, a believer, invited some of his friends over for a dinner party. It was going to be outdoors, and an agnostic came. He was the first one there. He wasn't able to put it all together. He, he had some questions about God. And while he was walking around, while his uh, host was getting ready for the party, putting the last finishing touches on it, he observed these wonderful Japanese lanterns that were hanging everywhere, hundreds of them, for light in the patio. And the agnostic said, uh, man, it must have taken a long time to hang those things. I bet you've been working all day. He said, who hung those for you? And the believer looked up in the heavens and he said, who hung those stars in space there? And the agnostic looked up and looked at the stars and he thought a minute. He said, well, I guess they just hung themselves there. And the believer said, that's how my lanterns got here. From the biblical perspective, God is the source of life. As a matter of fact, He not only created everything, the Bible affirms, but He sustains everything. He holds it all together, and He's not only the origin of life, He is the object of it. So that He not only created life and is the source of it, He created it for Himself so that everything that has been created will ultimately end up with Him. He is the origin and the object of creation. And that's what Paul is talking about in that marvelous Ephesian passage, one of my favorites. For God has allowed us to know the secret of His plan, and it is this. He purposed long ago in His sovereign will that all human history should be consummated in Christ and that everything that exists in heaven and earth should find its perfection and its fulfillment in Him. This means that God is the source of everything. Now one of the greatest tragedies, I think, is that modern man so afraid that God is going to rob him or, 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 or cramp his style, builds all these gigantic walls up to keep God out. When God is the source of his life and the fulfillment of it, and he cannot find fulfillment apart from God. Now the Bible affirms life and connects it with God. Get that please. It says that God is the source of life, the sustainer of life, and the object of all of it. Now, if that is true, and I believe it is, then what I know and believe about life and about the life that lies beyond this life is based upon my belief in God and the nature of God. For if God is a God of love, then He must have created us for more than this life here. If that's not true, then how do you explain Donna Bullard's death? How do you explain someone who dies prematurely or those who have to suffer all of their life in pain or those who are killed in defense of their country? A belief in a God of love is to believe that there is another place in which joy and happiness is fulfilled and where love has the, has the opportunity to reach its final function. You see, the Bible affirms that you were created not for this time, but for eternity. But what about death? 
There are some of you who are terrified at death. I read not long ago of a young woman who was dying of AIDS. And her family went to see her. And they don't know how to talk to her, so they just kind of talked around her. They just kind of talked among themselves while this patient, this family member, is over in this bed. And after that went on for about an hour, she began to pound on her bed. And she said, I want to live. I want to live. I don't want to leave you, and I don't want to leave my children. I bleeping don't want to die. Now, there's some of you who can identify with that. What about death? How does it strike you this morning? Now watch this. How does it strike you to think of death as another birth? Now I know we all have given death various names. We call him the grim, the grim reaper, the murderer. Job said, called death terror. And said, death's tent is full of terrors. But God and the Scripture likes to think of death as another birth. Now listen to this. If you get nothing else, remember this sentence. The Bible sees death as another step in the process of becoming. Now when you and I were first conceived... We were two cells, we were two cells in the womb of our mother. And we received capacities there. The psalmist was right, I think, when he said that we were woven there. We were were receiving capacities. We got the capacity to see, and so we started getting eyes. We had the capacity to hear, so the little ears that stick out on my head like that started farming on my little head. We got the capacity to walk. And so we started developing feet. We got the capacity to love. And so the heart, the emotions, started being developed. And all of these capacities were being developed in the confinement of our mother's body, but they could not be lived out there. They could not find their fulfillment there. You developed the capacity to see, but you couldn't see there. You developed the capacity to hear, but you couldn't hear there. You developed the capacity to walk, but you couldn't walk there. There had to be another place where these capacities that were being received in the womb could be realized in reality and fulfillment. So thus came the great disruption called birth. Now in birth, from the womb, birth looked like death. It looked like cessation. It looked like separation. It looked like consummation. But it wasn't. Birth was the trauma that enabled us to be in another place where these capacities could be fulfilled. It wasn't cessation or consummation or or, uh, separation. Just think of all that we've been able to do here that we could have never done in the womb of our mother. We can walk here. We can talk here. we We can feel here. We can love here. Now, 
from the perspective of death, death looks like death. It looks like cessation. It looks like consummation. It looks like separation. But from the perspective of God, it looks like birth. It's the place that God has created and prepared where all of the capacities that we're receiving in this life, and Bilheimer says that we're just learning how to live in heaven down here on earth, it's where these capacities that we're getting in minuscule are fulfilled and developed. Now, I don't understand all there is to understand about heaven or about the um, rewards in heaven, but I believe this that we're receiving capacities here in this life that find their fulfillment in a life that is beyond. There has to be a death for the great, listen, for the great drama of creation to roll on. God's not through with us yet. As we pass through this valley of death, we do so in order to get from where we are developing capacities to where we can enjoy and experience them. The Bible says that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'll remind you of that illustration that you heard before. This guy had this, had the art that's a, that's a lost art. He could whittle. Like my granddad could whittle anything. This guy would take a piece of, he and his buddies would sit around this old pot-bellied stove in some jot em down store. For you young whippersnappers, that's a general store. And they'd sit around in the wintertime around this potbelly stove and this old guy would whittle. He'd made rabbits and he made animals and he made toys. And when he'd finish one, get it just perfect, he'd just open that potbelly stove and chunk it in there and it'd burn up. One day one of his friends said, why don't you save those? Those are magnificent. He said, why don't you sell them? And the guy said, oh, nobody would want those. Nobody would ever buy those. That's not the way God is. That man didn't know the value of his creation. God does. That man was careless about his creation. God isn't. And he forms us and he shapes us in this life in order that there might be a place where that capacity could reach its fulfillment. So that physical birth begins with the miracle of the empty womb and spiritual life continues with the miracle of the empty tomb. Now lest you think that I just got completely off of this text, I want to say five things just quickly about how this relates to what Jesus was doing when he was talking to that thief. You might want to jot these down, you probably won't. Jesus gave assurance to this man that life goes on. Now watch this. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. As death cannot stop me, Jesus was saying, no more can it stop you. Now watch this carefully. He wasn't talking about the immortality of the soul. He was talking about the con continuity, the continuance of life. And he, Jesus, knew that this outlaw, this dying thief, would be himself beyond death. I will always be I, and you will always be you. 
second thing he was doing. He was giving assurance of an abiding fellowship with himself. Today you will be with me. Now how did these two guys come together, unlikely candidates for fellowship? They came to, there was another guy there, remember? Just the same distance from Jesus, just on the other side of him. But this man came to know Jesus, came to Jesus through his repentance, through his confession of sin. This guy's doing nothing. He's done nothing wrong. We've done what we, we're getting what we deserve. Through his need and his cry for forgiveness. That's how they got together. For we learned last week that forgiveness is not just the removal of the penalty. It's the restoration of the fellowship. So this man, because of his need, turned to Jesus for, for forgiveness of sin, and they became one. They were, they were joined. I like Martin Luther's example. He said, the Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God even though they saw Him raising the dead. And this dying thief believed He was the Son of God when he saw Him dying like a criminal. He trusted Him. And they'll be together in paradise. Now, I'm not too hung up on whether heaven is, has streets of gold or walls of jasper or gates of jasper or walls of pearl, whatever it, is, whatever it is. A lot of people are all worried about that. I'm not that worried about it as long as I know that I'm where Jesus is. It's going to be the best place. He gave, third, he gave him assurance of a heavenly home. Just a few hours before, he called it my father's mansions, my father's house, many rooms. And what he was saying is, we're going to the Father's house, whatever that is. I am personally encouraged when I see that when Jesus stepped through the doors of the Father's house, he had a repentant thief by the hand. Ha ha. When I breathe my last, I'm going to step into the Father's house by the hand of Jesus. Fourth, he gave him assurance of the immediacy of a heavenly home. Today, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. And he wasn't talking about the fact that when you die, you go into this soul sleep, and you sleep until the resurrection. A lot of people believe that. I was pastor when I got up right out of college. I was pastor a little country church, and, and I was the only pastor in town. So I knew everybody. I knew everybody's dog and everything. And, and, and there was this boy from a senior in high school. He, four days after he graduated from high school, he was killed in a motorcycle accident. And his parents asked me to preach his funeral. It was sweet people. And they came to my office the, you know, to, to ask me to preach his funeral. And this is what they said. They said, Brother Till, well, we don't, we don't believe like you believe. He said, we believe that our son is now in soul sleep and that he will sleep in death until the resurrection comes. And they said, we'd appreciate it if you wouldn't say anything that would be contradictory to our belief. Now, to believe that, that, that when you die, you sleep until Jesus returns is not consistent with the faith of Jesus. It's not consistent with the New Testament. This day you'll be with me immediately when we cross death's door. We're in heaven. Did you hear me? I figure some of you jump up and give high fives. I mean, immediately when we pass death's door, immediately we're in heaven, in, in paradise. And the fifth assurance he gives is that the moment you turn to him, you're saved instantly. 
You didn't have to come down from a cross, go get baptized or join the church. I mean, instantly when you turn to Jesus by faith and repent of your sin and through faith you trust Him, then you're saved. Now, the question that comes to every one of us perhaps now is what are we doing with this life? I have some opinions. I'm going to mention two of them, humble and accurate as they are. One opinion is that many of us are, are very careless about this life. Now, if it is true that down here in this earth we're developing capacities that will find fulfillment in heaven, why are we so careless about what we're doing? We talk about, oh, I'm, I just love Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Let me tell you something. I know some of you couldn't give testimony to five minutes with Jesus here on earth. And we talk about, oh, when I get to heaven, we're going to be with loved ones. Man, what a choir we're going to have up there. And some of you can't get along with anybody down here. I mean, why are we so careless with this life? And Dr. Tanner tells about the time this great flotilla, this battleship, I'm, I'll be through in time. His, this, this flotilla, somebody said, I'll probably die before he gets through. I'm glad he's telling me about death. Right? <laughs> this, this huge battleship. And on this battleship, there was this gigantic cannon, and a man was responsible for firing that thing. And before he fired the cannon, he had to be sure it was secured to the deck. And one day, an armada of pirates came sailing over the horizon and engaged them in war. And they started to get ready for battle, and this man plugged his, put his shot and powder in that cannon and fired it. And when it blew up, it came loose from its moorings and started rolling, shooting across that deck of that ship and ground under five crewmen. When the ship pitched in yod or whatever it does, that, 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 cannon wheeled and turned coming back toward him and he stood facing the cannon as it roared down the deck toward him and just as he got to, to him he jumped aside grabbed a grabbed an iron bar and thrust it into the spokes of the wheels and locked it down it turned over became immobile the second mate said to the captain later what will we do with him? And the captain said, First we decorate him for his courage. Then we shoot him for his carelessness. Why are you so careless about this life, I ask you? And I think some of us with this life have been pretty selfish about Jesus. And I have a feeling that one of the questions he's going to ask me when I stand before him is this, why were you ashamed of me in that life? What are you doing with this life? And I need to say this until I'm through to that one who in this room is not prepared to die. It's a pretty dangerous thing to gamble. One day my phone rang, it's been several years ago, but it did happen to me here. I've been here as long as I've been alive, seems like, to you. My phone rang, 
This lady said, I want you to go to the hospital and visit a man out there. He said, I need to tell you about this man. She really gave me a lot of motivation to go. She said he hates preachers. And she said he's a profane and, and immoral man and hates church. Boy, I was fired up by that time. I was ready to go. And I went out there and I walked in this room and there was this old guy in this room and I just introduced myself. I didn't tell him who I was. just told him my name. We got to talk. I said, I heard you were sick and I came by to see you. Well, he said, I'm pretty sick. And we talked. And I went back and I went back and I just visited him. I just loved him, really. One day I went out there and I walked in his room. He looked at me and he said, who the hell are you? <laughs> now, I don't use profanity, but I, hey, I'm just <laughs> telling you what he said. He said, who, who the hell are you? And I said, well, I'm the Baptist preacher at First Baptist Church. And he said, he used that word again, <laughs> right after that. He, and uh, so we talked and we visited and, and um, he'd get in the hospital and he'd get out of the hospital and he'd get back in. He was dying. One day they called me and told me he was taken into the emergency room. I was up in intensive care. And so I went out there and I walked in. He said, preacher, tell me what happened to me. He said, I remember... All of a sudden, he said, I, I remember just being thrust out into a desert. He said, I just landed out there, boom. He said, when I hit the, the desert floor, dust flew up. He said, as far as I could see, all I could see was barrenness and huge boulders. And he said, out from behind one of those boulders stepped this creature. He said, like a prehistoric creature. He said, it started toward me. He said, I've never been so frightened. He said, just before it got to me, he said, I woke up here in this intensive care unit. He said, what happened to me? I said, well, I don't have the slightest idea what happened to you, man. I said, I don't have a clue. But I said, I'll tell you what I think God might be doing. He said, okay. I said, I think he might be telling you that you don't want to go there, wherever that is. And he's giving you a chance to be saved. You want to be saved? He said, yeah, I do. Dr. Ingalls, was his he was Dr. Ingalls' patient. Dr. Ingalls remembers that when I baptized him in that Baptist, we asked Dr. Ingalls to be here. He's in poor health, terrible health. And we literally carried him down in the baptistry. I've told you that story to tell you this. There are two realities that lie beyond this life. You don't want to go there. Whatever that's like, you don't want to go there. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray for that one who cannot say with total honesty, I'm ready for the summons of death. For that one who cannot say, I'll go immediately to the Father's house by the hand of my wonderful Savior. I pray that that person would come today to the same faith and surrender of a dying thief. To trust Jesus. We have so much more evidence that he is the sinless Son of God than this man had. Give us faith to believe. And I pray for that one who might have to say, well, I have indeed been 
careless with my life, wasting my opportunities. I have habits and attitudes and a spirit I need to get right. And God, I pray that you'll call to yourself today that great number you'd call to heaven, to commitment, to faith in Jesus' name.